pronounce your name correctly for me? Well, mine is quite simple. It's Catherine Schilling. You're in the UK and you're a glass worker, I'm going to say, because I know you do various forms of glass. But a lot of times I want to know about like how people got into the creative arts in the first place. Like, so all the way back to childhood, were your parents creative? Did you have some great teachers? Like, what was the thing that sort of led you down the path of creativity? Well, I think my father was quite a good artist, although he never really followed that path himself at all. I remember he did some very beautiful sketches of people, like my mother. And so I knew there was that in the family. But my sister, who's four years older than me, she was quite creative. The pair of us used to do quite a lot of fashion drawings. We used to make our own little... You used to be able to get these dress-up dolls where the, you'd get a doll and then you'd get the dress and you'd be able to hook it over the doll. So we used to make our own. So we spent a lot of time doing that sort of thing. But the first time I realised I was better than a lot of people was when I was at what we call junior school. So I would probably have been about six or seven. And we were asked to draw each other or paint each other you know, in in a lesson. And mine apparently was good and people commented on it so I always followed that path in the UK well I went to a type of school which is called I suppose they were called grammar school so it was supposed to be sort of a more academic state school and so art wasn't very highly thought of at all although music was Art is not very highly thought of in most <laughs> academic settings. No. Well, I don't know, because when my son went to a very academic school, they were really, they had the better art room than my foundation year had at, at art school. So, but anyway, I did insist on taking art up to what we call A-level. So when I was 18, and then I decided to go to art school. So. I naively applied to one of the best art schools in the country because I thought I wanted to be a jewellery designer and they had a jewellery design course. So, of course, I, I applied for that. And I got in and it was quite a shock, really. The shock that I got in and actually the place was quite a shock. And in, at the end of that first year, which was foundation art, of course, you had to then apply for a degree course and well at that point they gave us back our original applications where we could all see who'd vote because they only took 80 people it was very small and very elitist really my art school i graduated with only four other students well three other students a total of four of us graduating that's a small school well the foundation course at that time was quite small, like 80 students. But then they changed it so it was like 200 or something and they put everybody in a warehouse rather than the art school. But anyway, we were able to see which of our tutors had, you know, thought we should be good enough and it was quite interesting. And then I applied to get to stay at the same art school. It's called the Central School of Art and Design. And I applied to do graphics, graphic design, I wasn't sure whether to do fine art or graphics. And at one point I thought I might try sculpture. But back in those days, 
sculpture was regarded as a male thing. And I was told, don't, don't apply, it's not for women. Which is terrible. That's horribly sexist, but mm. I'm, I'm guessing it was of the time period. Yeah, so I, I had a lovely time. It was a fantastic art school, and I had a fantastic time there. So, wait, I guess, so you wanted to be a jewellery maker, but then you went into graphic arts. So what did you end up doing? <laughs> well, I did work as a graphic designer for a long time. My favourite area was typography and book design. And as you know, I have a lot of books. So that was really important to me. And I really enjoyed it. I, I worked some of the time for organizations. I did some freelance work. And then I went back to work for a, a company. They were called Dorling Kindersley. I think they were known around the world. But I worked for them. And all of the books were heavily, heavily illustrated with photography. So they were like step-by-step -step books and they'd go from children's books right up to quite complex adults' books. And I worked in the adult book section and we did the complete book of sewing, I remember. I learned, I, I, theoretically, I can make anything now. But it was a good company because the creatives, the art, the art director, and well, I was an art director, each visual person had a partner who was an editor and so the company was set up by somebody visual the visual people were actually regarded quite highly which is very very unusual so it was a good organization so then what brought you to glass well glass i remember and i must have been probably before i went to art school i had a book on contemporary stained glass because I used to go to a lot of exhibitions because living in London there's so many places you can go to and I did used to go to a lot of exhibitions and somehow I went to this exhibition about contemporary stained glass which stayed with me I still have the book somewhere it stayed with me for a long time but I didn't know how to get into glass they didn't have glass courses at the art schools but the weird thing was that the head of fine art at central school he was the man who used to realize john piper's paintings and create and turn them into stained glass so he was it's awful his name will come back to me in about 10 minutes but while he was there as head of fine art there was no glass at all which was quite strange. I then had a career as a graphic designer for a long time. And then um, my husband, he worked a lot in America, but we lived in the UK. But uh, then they decided they wanted him to move to New York and run one of the sort of small companies they bought just to sort of, I don't know, just bring it up to speed or whatever. So we moved to America and it was in 2001. So we weren't there. Yeah, so he worked in Midtown Manhattan and we lived in Connecticut. And I had thought that maybe I could work for the US office of Dorling Kindersley, but I soon realised it wasn't going to work with... I had children who needed me around during the day and everything, so I didn't really know what to do with myself, but I kept driving past this stained glass studio 
And one day I drove past and they were doing classes. Oh, I saw it. I saw this sign saying they would do classes and I saw it quite a lot. And then finally, I was very shy. I got brave and went in and asked. And apparently they had one place left, which obviously was mine. And that was it. I was completely hooked. Now, if you don't mind me asking, though, how old were you approximately when you found your the glass medium? I must be in my early 50s. Wow. Okay, great. Because I'm four, yeah. I'm 48 and I'm sitting here thinking like, so do I have more in my career or is my career done? <laughs> like, so to know that you found your voice, your your medium in your 50s is a, a sort yeah. of a, a very optimistic thing. Yes. I, I, and I quite like making stained glass. In fact, I love making stained glass. But what I really loved was the handmade glass that we used. And I got very obsessed with looking at Tiffany glass and all the beautiful glass that was made specifically and how it was used within Tiffany's work. And the the lady that owned the stained glass studio, they'd been working for decades in that field. They're very, very good. But she used to every so often drive down into New York and then go to New Jersey. And there's a place there called Bendheim. And it was the huge warehouse full of all this wonderful glass. And she would go and do her business and I would just go around and look at all the glass. I was there one day and there was a professor from Rhode Island School of Design. And he was lovely. He's, yeah, fantastic. And he was making some incredible things. And he spent a lot of time with me very kindly. And I was like, oh, that's what I want to do. Often a lot of glass, people talk about glass being a very uh, laborious, like physically laborious process to produce. But I'm thinking specifically, I think hot shop. I'm, I, I don't know all the vernacular, so bear with me. But like hot shop work is very physically demanding, but you do a lot of kiln work, which is a bit different. Yeah, so I work mainly with what's called fused glass. I always think there's a hierarchy in glass. So at the top of the top of the hierarchy... I think you have maybe it's a toss up between cast glass and hot shop and hot glass. That's that's the top end of it. And then you come down and there's other things. But I think mine is literally at the bottom. Don't play yourself down like that. Come on. Fused glass is regarded as hobbyist. And I'm not using that term. That's how it's been you know, I've been told about it and I think that's very rude, but it just isn't a thing and people aren't that interested in it. In in the in the UK, I think it's better in the States. What happened was I came back from America and started doing classes again in stained glass. And then I saw that there was this thing called a kiln. And I watched people putting things in and out and that and I was just fascinated. So this is what we call adult education. Yes. Yeah, so then I was so obsessed. I hardly did any stained glass at all. It was only like one afternoon a week. Anyway, they eventually they said, well, we're doing a new class for beginners next term. We think you should probably join. So that's what I did. And that was it. I was completely obsessed. But it was just fusing glass. And I did quite a few years of these classes. And I just was obsessed with it and making and making and making. And everything I 
worked towards, I tested on, there's lots of different types of glass that you can use and different temperatures. So I did an awful lot of testing and things like that. But I was pretty obsessed with fused glass. I didn't know there was anything else, really. And if I'd gone to a different art uh, place where they did a lot of cast glass, I don't know what would have happened. Well, you probably would be doing cast glass. Well, yes, but I, I don't know. Yeah. It is interesting how where where we get our education and what their expertise and their resources and all that is often leads us down, let's say, our first path. It's not to say it's where what we're going to do our whole careers, but it, it sort of starts us off for a good couple of years and then maybe we'll find some other thing in time. But the amount of influence that those things have on us is quite striking. Yeah, because I did several years and I didn't know in all that time that there was a such a thing called cold working, which is how cast glass is in particular is finished because it comes out of a mould a bit messy and it needs sorting out. And I didn't even know that existed. So I used to make pieces that didn't need any cold working because I didn't know you, you could do it. I wasn't told about it um, i and have no idea what you're talking about so please educate me <laughs> what is cold working if you cast a piece of glass in a mold when you demold it the exterior is not perfect i mean say you wanted a really lovely shiny finish you wouldn't have that shiny fish you would actually have to achieve it by using machinery and grit Right, polishing. Uh, to, po- to polish it. Yeah. So it's polishing, yeah. We didn't have any polishing <laughs> machines. I didn't know about it. The other thing I wanted to do was, because when you do fused glass, it's quite flat. Even if you put it into a mould, the moulds are very shallow. And I wanted to make things that had higher sides. And I realised the only way I could do that was by going glass blowing. So I took lessons at a place called London Glass Blowing, which is a private you know business. And I did learn there that you, there was well that, that that this cold working existed. And I did quite a lot of years of allegedly learning to blow glass, but what I was really doing was working out what I wanted to make, which was too difficult for me to make. So my teacher had to do a lot of the making. Yeah, well, but it's also a, a sort of a cooperative process in the, the hot shop. You ha- it takes two people oftentimes to do a lot of the work. Yeah, but I was sort of art directing it rather than making it, which my teacher was fine with. Uh, that sounds lovely. I mean, there's there's great places for those people as well. Yeah. Nobody says you have to be putting in the blood, sweat, and tears. I was too old anyway. It's perfectly legitimate. Lots of great artists do it. I mean, it's historically normal to have, you know, oversee somebody who's sort of producing your works. Yeah. yeah. Now, you mentioned something earlier about like in the UK, certain sort of glass stuff was appreciated, but in the US, you think it was more. I'm interested, like, where in the world sort of appreciates glass art the most? So like are the big collectors and or galleries and or exhibition opportunities, like where are they often sort of located? Well, I would say there's probably 
a greater love of glass as a collectible thing in the US than certainly than in the UK. We have a very, very, very small pool of collectors. Australia, I think, regard glass very highly. And they had the Canberra School of Art. They had a, a Klaus Moyer who set up this fantastic course. And, and a lot of the artists who have come through that course have been kiln workers. So it's very highly thought of there. And there are places in Europe, but it's a very different aesthetic, I think, to the UK because I have friends who are Swiss and they show in these beautiful Swiss museums and their work is very conceptual and there's a difference, there's a really different aesthetic in Europe than in the UK. Oh, I know. I'm from the United States. There's a very different balance of aesthetics and concept and technicality and craftsmanship is very different culture to culture. I mean, in the United States, I'd say right now, it's sort of emphasizing concept and less about craftsmanship and skill and all that. Whereas in Europe, there's a long tradition of the skill and techniques and craftsmanship and less on the concepts. (laughs) So like, there's a weird balance. And I wish there would be like a lovely middle point between them. Well, I think one of the problems in the UK is that if you're a glass artist and you want to sustain a practice, you have to make objects that sell. For example, with with glass blowers, because I I ended up becoming the curator at the gallery at London Glass Blowing. So I worked a lot with a lot of different British artists and a lot of different people worked in blown glass. They would make a more conceptual and sort of exhibition work but their practice would be sustained by them actually working as an artisan for someone else and also uh, making work that they could sell what kind of work would that be because like i know exactly what you're talking about because like i'm a photographer so of course like a lot of photographers do their fine art works but then they do commercial work or whatever on the side just to pay the bills kinds of things like so that that idea is totally normal but like so when it comes to glass like what is it like tea sets and stuff like this or like well just uh, just um, or just more affordable versions like more affordable beautiful objects yeah more affordable and 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 objects that you you know might be a vase or it might be a bowl whereas they might be making things that are definitely not functional they're just lovely but not necessarily very conceptual not necessary. Sometimes there is quite a lot of underlying concept, but often I think because we have we haven't got the sort of galleries or museums that will show the very conceptual work. So there is very little opportunity to make it. And we have a a biannual exhibition called well the British Glass Biennale. But if you're making something very conceptual you have to put a lot into it and you've no idea if you'll get into this exhibition because it can depend each year who the judges are and all that sort of thing. So I think people shy away from that quite a lot. Well, but you do, like I'm looking at your website, you do a mix. Like you seem to do both some bowls and vases and then some what I would consider very conceptual stuff, your textile fabric sort of styled pieces. You know, they're not utilitarian at all. And they're very much all about the, you know, concept and the aesthetics. 
Yeah, and that goes back to when I was doing the adult education class. I mean, the V&A, the Victorian Album Museum in London, is one of my most favourite museums. Fabulous museum. And it is wonderful. And I used to go there a lot anyway, but we were told to to go. They had this artist in residence who was a textile artist. So what we were learning was an applied art rather than fine art. And, you know, she was an applied art person doing textiles. But when we saw what she was doing, she actually did very little weaving at all. She made these amazing pictures out of stones that she'd picked up on beaches. And she's called Sue Lorty. She's a wonderful artist. And textiles is just one part of what she does. She does wonderful things. But what she had done, which I was captivated by, was make sort of fabric-type pieces out of lead, sort of hammer them together. Or just sticks and tin foil, you know, little bits and pieces, really lovely little objects. And I just looked at them and thought, oh, I wonder if I could do that with glass. So that's what I then worked on. I sort of came up with this way of making what looks like a flat fabric. I was used to make them quite small pieces. I then sewed them all together with wire. So it was like a patchwork quilt, but it was glass and wire. Because I also also quite obsessed with patchwork quilts having, I loved them. So that was something that it was quite nice to play with. But the standing forms, I didn't really want to make bowls. And I started to make free-formed pieces rather than slumped into a, into a shape, a pre-existing mould. I started to make them... I uh, didn't really know quite which way I was going at the time, but I just started to make them because I wanted them to look more like a fabric that's sort of folded or, you know, rather than just flat. And that's how my standing forms started. I went from there with them. They've been something I keep returning to all the time. And interestingly, I think they sell better <laughs> in America than they do in the UK. Well, that's one of my interests, if you're willing to talk about it, which is like just generally like sales and exhibitions. Like for you, as I said, like based on your website, you have the somewhat applied stuff, the functional types of things, your bowls, your vases, and then you have your conceptual stuff. What's the sales? Like, so do you have more sales of the conceptual work or more of the sort of functional stuff? Oh, definitely the conceptual stuff, actually, in my case. Because I have made quite a few bowls recently. So when I make a piece, I use strands of glass and some of them are as fine as one millimetre thick and some of them are five millimetres thick. They come all different in between. And some of them are made in this incredible array of colour. I had this idea of an exhibition at London Glassblowing because a lot of people came through the door and said, oh, it's just like Murano. And I thought, it's not really. So so we just had a, a play on the idea that, because Venetian glass is actually quite different. It's a different type of glass it's used, and it's used in a different way. I mean, it's become more used around the world, all the cane work and everything. Anyway, so I thought I made this piece for the exhibition, which was these strands of glass, which are called cane. It's so many layers, hundreds and hundreds of these fine strands and lots and lots of colours. And the idea was that it was supposed to look like the canopy of the rainforest. So all these colours and greens, but a lot of other ambers and 
turquoise, all lots of colours within it, with flashes of these little bits of what we call dichroic glass, which is sends these lovely bolts of light across it. And so I made that, and that was called Mirror of the Forest, and it and the, the pieces really I call them a them diorama because the Victorians were very good at making diorama that you could practically stand within, and they were used to show you what places are like in the world. I've seen them recently at the British Museum. They were doing an exhibition about the Arctic, I think. So they have these figures and they have how they live and you painted backdrops and some of them are very complex. It just gave people a taste of what another place in the world was like. And I felt that that's what this bowl would do. It would give you a hint of of this place. And also these places are endangered and the Victorians made these diorama and they were a glimpse of a place before they were ruined or changed by whoever had trumped into their their lives. So I felt that they, they were like a modern form of diorama. And so I've made them about lots of different places that I've seen and visited. And all of these places are endangered. So I could really analyze the world around me through the color that I see. Everywhere I go, I take photographs. But to me, it's the color that is important, not the form. So I've used these bowls to describe lots of different places. They've actually been very popular. Because I wonder about it because I mean, I'm a practicing artist and oftentimes I put a lot of time and energy into my big, large scale, conceptual sort of exhibition quality things. And then and then I always wonder whether I should, you know, make some smaller, more affordable things. And, you know, some artists talk about how that's their business model, you know, that they do make and offer some af- smaller, affordable or maybe prints or whatever kind of versions. And then they have sort of the high, you know, expensive stuff. And so I'm always interested about like what kind of balance other artists have come to so like do you, is it 50 50 for you like applied sort of functional works and conceptual or do you do a lot more of one or the other i think having had a career that took me nearly up to the age of retirement i felt that i wouldn't work in that way with glass i was adamant that i would make what I wanted to make and hopefully some people might like it enough to buy it although I started off originally making small pieces I didn't sell anything I never showed it anywhere so I didn't sell anything when I first went to London glass blowing I went to help in their gallery because they moved and they moved to a place with a street their gallery had been slightly enclosed before and you had to sort of know where it was and it was you were let in and you went upstairs. But this was a like a shop front and there weren't enough people in the company at that point. There wasn't a company really. It was just Peter Layton whose studio it was and his team of glassblowers and then the woman who did everything else went on maternity leave. So I went to try and help. After quite a long time, I did actually start to show a few things took years sometimes even after like eight years people didn't know who I was or what I did there they'd never really noticed me before but um because I would do the curating I wasn't like on the selling side I was just getting the place looking 
lovely. Eventually, people started to buy things. And I think because I learned that I had to price my work in a sensible way so that the amount of hours that were spent on it, so that it had a parity with the other artists' work. I think I probably sold as many big things as little things. I don't really... Because quite often, the blown work that I've made is much less in price than... Although I do now have a big a range of pieces that are very expensive. But I'd blowing glass for a while and had to have a, an operation on my spinal cord. I had a tumour within my spinal cord. It wasn't malignant, but it was very nasty. It was um, formed from malformed blood vessels, and it creates a sort of tumour that looks like a bulberry or a raspberry. Mm-hmm. So the and and the blood is corrosive to neural tissue, so it's nasty in that way. I'd become quite disabled from without really knowing what was wrong with me. I'd had it growing for 30 years before it was diagnosed. Wow. And by, by the time it was diagnosed, it had taken most of the neural tissue at that place had got where it was in my and it's hot it's a high up, it's sort of sort of chest level where the actual thing was. Anyway, I had the operation, had it removed, and I hadn't been good at glass blowing before, really. But I was always in the hot shop working a lot alongside my teacher. But I tried after the operation, and I've got no balance. Was very poor balance, and one of the side effects of the whole thing is that I don't have a very good temperature control mechanism anymore. And so, if I get hot, I get hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter. If I get cold. I can't warm up again. It's very strange. But I thought I was going to pass out. I thought, this is so hot. I can't deal with it. So um, I felt I couldn't carry on selling pieces unless they were things that I had had my hand in in some way. So I have a few uh, series of blown glass. Some contain pieces that I've made. And others are ones that I designed when I was on, designed and made before. They seem to be more affordable end of my work. All right. But, yeah, so in fact, that sustained my, for a while, that all sustained my kiln work, which is really nice. What about the curating end of it? I mean, is this something you just do for the one gallery or do you do curating all over? So I was a curator at London Glassblowing for about 10 years. And then I was getting more busy and life was quite busy as well. So I was happy to step away. I have done a little bit of curating for other people, but not a huge amount. I think if I wanted to do more, I could do. But I think my practice has actually got busier and busier in the lot, even now. I'm really busy. So it's very time consuming. Well, actually, which is a question that I was wondering, like, so, okay, this is 20, well, by the time this comes out, it'll be 2022, but it's 2021 today. So there's the pandemic. That's one thing, but you're also in the UK. So there's Brexit. So like, Uh how how have these two things affected you? Have they had any positive? Because I've heard a lot of artists like selling more during the pandemic and things like this. So have those two world changing things had any effect on you and your your ability to sell or or ability to exhibit even? Well, I think when the pandemic hit, 
I think like everybody else, we were in shock. Although I could, was still allowed to go to my studio because I have a studio within an artist studio complex and I don't see anybody there. So I was still allowed to go. I just thought, oh, I don't think I'll go. So I brought lots of things home. I started making lots of, this is the first time I really did it, lots of small things just because, and it was quite funny really because my husband is a musician. He was in a band, party band that does events that had only really got going recently. So he spent his days in one room playing the piano and I spent my days in another room making stuff. So, And we used to exhaust ourselves <laughs> by doing this. And I, I listened to a lot of books. But there was a thing that was invented by a British artist called the Artist Support Pledge. Mm-hmm. And so with that, the, the idea of the support was that you could sell something for up to £200 or dollars, I think, a but in the UK, it's up to £200. And if you sell £1,000 worth of these pieces, you would then spend £200 on someone else's work. And actually, there was a lot going on. I did sell some small pieces that I had. Quite a lot of them were pieces that, you know, you test out things, and you make, but they were perfectly nice. And then friends came to me and wanted things, and I'd never really sold like that before. So that was quite nice. And then odd things happened, like somebody contacted me from the south of France and wanted a piece. I thought it was all going to be horrendous, but I suppose other countries weren't in such a big lockdown necessarily as us. And gradually things started selling again. I've got a couple of galleries in America, and one of them, has this series of pieces called cloaked, which are very, very tall, blown forms that are enrobed in woven glass fabric cloaks as part in, it's a quite a complicated process, but it's all done in, the two things are brought together and done at one time. I'd made them a group and I think they'd only sold like one. And then they all suddenly sold because they said people were waiting to come and look at them. They couldn't just react to peace personally and so so that was that was good i love the idea that people have needing to see art in reality versus buying online but when it comes to glass work i mean the textures the way the light reflects off of it i mean there's so many subtle nuances that like seeing it in real life is very different than the sort of perfect image that was created the photograph you know that like this in its perfect light at the perfect angle it looks like this but seeing it at, at every other angle when you walk around it or engage, have different light qualities on it or stuff like this, these are all very important elements, I would imagine, when trying to oh, sell absolutely. it. absolutely. I mean, I don't quite understand how so much glass is sold online. <laughs> but so the, the London Glass Blowing, uh, they, you know, having a gallery is wonderful, but they also built up an online gallery because so many people did buy that way. And now a lot of galleries have these exhibitions and then they will produce an online catalogue. Yeah, so you feel that you can participate, particularly like in Australia, that there's some galleries there that I love. And it's just nice to see the work because it's very hard to photograph exhibitions. So these these lovely online catalogues work very well. And then we thought we were coming through the pandemic and things started to happen again 
and one of the galleries that my main London gallery, they got quite busy. They're called Vessel Gallery. Lovely people. They got quite busy. Surprising number of, I found an invoice just now. I was like, oh, wow. You know, quite a few things sold. They were busy. And it, again, it was all online at that point. Oh, well, I have to admit, we, we did more uh, like upgrades of our home decor during the pandemic than we probably had for decades because we were home more and we wanted it yeah. to be prettier. <laughs> well, I suppose that's it. Yes, because Bessel Gallery works a lot with interior designers as well. But they were having, you know, after a while, people were coming in and seeing things. Then, of course, Brexit actually happened, which was like, oh, and I, I, I'm I, probably one of the few people that remembers what it was like before Brexit. And I used to work in my holidays as a student. I used to work at the Bank of England, and we had this whole huge building full of people all dealing with currency exchange people taking money out of the country in the country, all this stuff that just doesn't exist anymore this building i don't well it does exist i'm not sure what it's useful i'd sold things to switzerland for example and the amount of tax i knew so i knew like with australia and switzerland people were paying import tax and um quite a lot and i'm not quite sure mainly i'd sold personally to, to Switzerland and Australia, I think. But, you know, I know galleries, it gives them another whole layer of things to deal with. Shipping work. So I had sent some work to an exhibition in the south of France before Brexit. And then we were all wanted to get the work back. And then they try and ask you to pay import tax and VAT on your own work. If you can prove that the work left the country and it was yours you you know you, you can get it back but i didn't have the right paperwork because there wasn't any problem before brexit you could just send work all over europe and there was nothing said so i had a few fights to get work back without paying i find that the customs people in almost every country don't understand the idea of sending work for an exhibition and then having it return like they just don't yeah. get that like they think that all shipments are one way for a pro yeah. sales product or whatever i had the same problem years ago with uh, an exhibition i had in cuba and they just would not because the u.s and cuba don't get along and they just would not send it back they were so upset trying to get it back to me yeah i think a lot of people have been horrified by the reality of what we've lost in that way because obviously people buy things from Amazon. Lots of people were, were buying something for £5 and then it was coming in, they're getting a £25 because they didn't realise they bought it from Germany. They bought it on Amazon UK. Right, and it doesn't tell you where it's coming from. No. Well, you know if it's China, and you know there is a possibility that you'll have to pay if it comes from China, but people haven't got a clue, really. So there's a big European exhibition called the Coburg Glass Prize. It's run very infrequently, so this is my first time of having a piece accepted. And he's been so lovely, the man, because he's just really tried to help the British people because everyone else is fine because they're all part of Europe. And in the end, Germany has not made it easy for the UK 
to export to Germany. It's like we're being told off, I think. Uh, I live in the Czech Republic and Germany is being equally not friendly towards us. Oh, really? Hmm. Well, anyway, in the end, I had to pay an art shipper to ship it because I knew there was an issue of it being returned and also of the German customs being difficult. So what he asked us to do was send it to the local customs office and everything was supposed to go to the local customs office and then he would come and pick it up and somehow that was going to work. Well, it has worked, but I mean, I had to pay over twice as much as I would have thought I'd have had to have paid to ship somewhere like that. But they've been very kind and they've actually given us quite a bit of money towards the shipping costs. I think they do it for everybody. They give it up to 200 euros, which covers most of it. Pretty good, yeah. Yeah. But everything, I mean, glass, going back to the pandemic, uh, we don't make the sort of glass that I use in the UK. So I use either glass that's made in Portland, Oregon by Bullseye Glass or a German company. So I use a particular type of glass from the German company and I haven't had trouble getting it, which is good, but I've had to pay. So on a shipment that's coming soon, which is under £200, I'm then paying £50 tax to customs. 25%. Yeah. Hmm. So it's import tax and VAT. Well, I've been running into the problem. I've got this particular art supply that I love, but that's made in France. And the supply chain like worldwide is all screwed up. And so nobody has this thing in stock. Like I've, I've even gotten desperate and I was willing to buy it from Jackson's in the UK and deal with the shipping from the UK to the Czech Republic. Jackson's is sold out. Every place is sold out of this thing because the company in France can't get this, the materials to even produce the thing from China or, or India or wherever they're getting their sort of raw products. There's a lot of these issues of the, like the supply chain affecting art supplies as well as not just, you know, toilet paper and the other things we all complain about. No, that's interesting. I, I mean, I know that there's a lot of the things that go into various t parts of a, what you need in a glass practice that come from China. The glass that I use that's made in America, they have had a lot of problems, I believe, with getting the raw materials. On top of that, they've had to deal with COVID and the loss of staffing and things. So that I think they've had a very difficult time. It's just... Um, I mean, I think there's there's some stuff that comes from China that's just the price has gone up and up and up. When you do glass blowing, you do use a different type of glass that's produced in a different way. And one of the big uh, producers of blowing glass and actually casting crystal is a company called Gaffer Glass, and they were based in New Zealand because glass is made from sand and they have very beautiful sand there. And then they moved the whole production business to the States and they tried to move all the important people. One of the people that was really important, who's the guy who sort of knows how to mix all the different things to make the colour, he wasn't allowed in at first. So that was a bit tricky. But I think they did set up production and everything. And, of course, we really struggled. I mean, there used to be a company in the UK 
it was called Glaff for Glass, and they would import the glass and then you'd buy it. They closed because in this time, the between Gaffer moving from uh, New Zealand to the States, there was months of nothing being made. So they went out of business. The UK company did. So people then tried to buy it individually, and it was just horrendous. I think now the guys who ran Gaffer Glass have sold it to another company because they were retiring. I can't remember what they're called. But in in the meantime, the British glass blowers have gone to a totally different company that always was around called Reichenbach and in the Germany, and they're getting their glass from there. And even it's much less complicated, even with Brexit. Mm. So I think you have to be flexible. It does seem that way these days. So there are lots of things that I'm noticing between the pandemic and the the shipping supply chain issues that like random things that are just not available anymore. And and unfortunately, I'm one of the people that uses very specialized materials. And so, of course, I'm using the things that aren't available anymore. So, yeah. Oh, that's so sad. They will be available at some point, but, you know, just have to be patient. Because I have a lot of ideas, I always have had, and then I will work out a way to make that idea in the best way that I think it should be made. So that could be fusing it or it could be blowing it. But I then had this idea, and it's, I blame Instagram for this because I decided to do, make it out of mosaic. And there's a company in Venice that has the most luscious Instagram feed that you know, these wonderful mosaics. And they make tesserae, which are these little pieces of glass that you use for the mosaic. And it's basically, I think it's pretty much like hot, pure colour that they pour out and they make a little patty of it, flatten it a bit. When it's cold, they cut it up into these little tiny bricks, I suppose. But it's all done by hand. And so when when the glass breaks, it breaks in these wonderful fractures. And so when you use the tesserae, you get this extraordinary depth to the colour because they've got so many, they've got a little landscape going on, so you get all the shadow play on them. Well, I carried on making, but I've been planning this mosaic ever since, I don't know, near the beginning of the pandemic. Finally, I was able to go and see these tesserae because obviously it was. I was trying to see it all online. And this piece is coming together at long last. And I suppose it's because it's given me a chance to play with something completely different, which I'm quite excited about. And it's it's conceptual, and I don't think anybody will buy it, but it's my comment on climate change, and I think it's quite important. And as many people complain about the pandemic, and don't get me wrong, it had negative effects on me and my private life and all this kind of stuff and my, my mental state. There were a lot of benefits from it. Like, I mean, I became you know, I had a lot more time and I sort of didn't have certain resources. And so I was sort of forced to try something else. And so I've actually ended up finding some amazing techniques and ideas and, you know, time to reflect and things like this to make more work. So like as much as there is, it's a horrific, you know, issue in the world, there are some things that actually it ended up being very helpful for me, at least, and a number of people that I've spoken with as well. I used to be horrendously busy you know, with my own practice, with the curating part of my life. And then I'm actually a grandparent and I had to look after a sister with dementia. So there's lots of things going on. And my days were just crazy, crazy busy. And suddenly that stopped. 
I mean, the, the saddest thing was not being able to see my family for quite a long time. Obviously, I needed that break. I think I'm much better for it. But I'm not at the, a time of my life where I think it's affected me too badly, apart from not seeing my family and friends, obviously. So I feel very sad for those going to university because their whole experience is just so different. And then and art schools are struggling because here, you know, they're not allowed in properly because they want to keep the social distancing. So art school is just not what it should be. And then if they finish their degree, there's no degree show and there's none of the usual razzmatazz that goes with it. And then it's very hard to get a job or do anything afterwards. I just don't know how. I think we're going to lose a generation in in a lot of ways. It's going to be tough for sure. I mean, the it's... You know, it's like it's like all the lawyers and bankers and doctors that came out of school after at around 2008 and the economic downturn at that time, like the, mm. the same thing with all the cultural loss. I mean, not just visual arts, but I mean, imagine the amount of performing arts people and theater people and musicians that are having an incredibly difficult time just eking a, a living through this, but also the ability to continue to do it because like when you sort of don't have any opportunities, you sort of end up having to take other jobs and so we may be yeah. losing a lot of great creative people because of the state of the world, basically. Yeah, and financially, my daughter, who's in her 30s, and she knows that they will be paying for this for the rest of their lives as well. And how much effect it will have on her child, I don't know. It's, it's, it's very difficult. I don't know. Mind you, I, when you look at history, I think there's been – I don't know when there was it wasn't difficult to be honest it's true yeah I mean really when There's, when is life easy yeah this is just not what well I mean they they said for years it would happen but this is weird but um yeah we it, it was always said as like it, this could happen and it's always like okay that could happen but to have it happen in our lifetime is like oh fuck oh they really meant that yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. I couldn't imagine being like college age or just out of college, just starting my career, and then like this happens. It's like that. Ooh, that's That's got to be gut-wrenching. Yeah, so that's well, I was just going to say, because, you know, I just hope that people understand things can happen at all ages. So obviously I have had like this extraordinary... 10 years or 12 years now. And I, you know, just at an age where actually women, I think, are very invisible at that age normally, very invisible. And I've had, I've felt like that. And I can remember going to an exhibition where, that I was in where somebody said, oh, 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 hi, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I'm in this exhibition. Oh, so uh, I think um, I, I feel that's made quite a big difference. To, to me well have you felt because i've been told that there's a lot of sort of sexism particularly in the glass field that it's a very male dominated field and then of course also there's a bit of like have you had any issues with what i call like ageism um because you're not the young superstar artist kind of thing oh i'm absolutely sure that i've had the ageism thing but i couldn't 
tell the story of it. You know, it's, I often work things out and I'm right. And I just thought, I just thought, hmm, yeah, I've definitely had the ageism thing. Oh, and sexism. Well, I mean, I lived through the 70s. So we've been there and done that. Um, glass blowing, I think, used to be a male dominated thing. And if you go to Murano, it still is. So the men make the glass, the women do the finishing and the selling. They don't bring their daughters into the factory. It's just not done. But as a an occupation, what I do, particularly fuse glass, is absolutely female dominated. There's very few men that do it at all. I think, yeah, you do get sexism, but I don't, I don't think probably when you're my age, it's not so bad. <laughs> it's, you know, not a young thing anymore. Or you just don't care. Well, I think if I saw it being dished out to a younger woman, I'd feel quite cross about it or try uh, quite maybe vocal. Well, because I even find like I'm now 48 and I find that there's a lot of opportunities and things for under 35 year old artists, oh, yeah. which drives me nuts. I think graduate sort of age maybe they they sort of they looked at the recently graduated but that is actually just recently graduated and I think there is one glass prize that is sort of is supposed to be that but it is actually it is actually capped there is a I can't remember how old you have to be 35 40 probably is way you know when you start to be too old but see that drives me nuts because when I was younger there were no competitions for under 35-year-olds. Literally, the first competition I ever saw for thirty, like 35 and under was the year I was 36. Oh, brilliant. So I'm like, God damn it. I like missed it by one year. That's so unfair. Hmm. I mean, there's, I'm in an interesting position because mainly people of my age are venerated artists who've been around for 40 years, blah, 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 blah. And I'm not that person either. I'm sort of new on the scene, but I'm quite old. So I don't know whether that's made it difficult. But my London gallery vessel, I mean, you know, he would be the last person. In fact, I think he's told me off. You know, he, it's, it's nothing to do with how old you are, whatever. You know, it's what you do. So he's given me a lot of confidence in that way. Working as a curator, my age was definitely quite useful because you're already in a position where, you know, you're like the same as somebody's mum. So if you tell them off, they don't really take it too badly. They appreciated that I had the skill, but also I had to learn to, well, I suppose when I worked as an art director at Dorling Kindersley before, I had a, like a team underneath me and we had to do a lot of photography shoots. And so there were lots of things where you were sort of trying to get people to do something nicely and so curating often is just is that you want people to sort of do what you say do what you want ask them to do without them having an opinion <laughs> and so I'd always try and say to them well I am listening to you you know I, I'm listening to you but I'm just going to try it this way because that's what you know what I feel at the moment is the right thing to do and they all stopped having opinions which was good. You can't have that when you're trying to put an exhibition together. But they'd all do whatever I asked them to do. I had this fantastic team there, and they were what they worked so hard. And um, we used to put on really lovely exhibitions. This is a lovely way to end. Then, so thank you very much. 
Well, thank you. <laughs> it's, uh, it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of this conversation. We would appreciate it if you would share the podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, even studio mates, anyone with an interest in the arts and creative endeavors. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community is at the core of our mission for this podcast. They can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014, the audio was edited by Mickey at Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. Thanks, Pete. We all know how important funding for the arts is, so I'd like to show my appreciation for the EEA grants from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in their effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Czech Republic and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website wisefoolpod.com.